Amnesty, meet great people, and listen to local musicians, come to the gallery in the sub at 7.30pm next Wednesday. Hope to see you there. Hey there, it's Tracy Fuller calling, um, <laughs> calling you out from here in Vancouver. It turns out that there's something fishy going on with my arts report soundtrack here. So um, I'm without music to open the show today, and I, I apologize immensely for that. But despite the fact that we are having a couple of technical difficulties, I have a jam-packed show waiting for you out there. So uh, I hope you're ready. Buckle your seatbelts. It's going to be a, an interesting ride, I think. On today's show, um, I've got CITR's fabulous music director, Luke Meek, bringing us a review of Steve Reich's drumming, which was on stage at the Heritage Hall last night. That's part of the PUSH Festival. And continuing our PUSH coverage, uh, Melanie Cooksdorf, my dance critic, will be reviewing Transmission of the Invisible. Theatre critic Paul Riviere headed out to the Arts Club's new show, The Constant Wife by Somerset Mom. And uh, we'll get, be giving you a tour of the Helen Morris and Helen Belkin Gallery. They've got a new exhibit on called Action Camera, Beijing Performance Photography. And I headed over to the gallery earlier today to, to check that out. And last but not least, we will have be chatting, hopefully, with singer-songwriter Joni, Jody Glenham about her new album, which hit the stores as of yesterday, but uh, her CD launch is not until a little bit later this month. And, uh, but she's playing a show this Friday um, with Woodhands at Performance Works, so we're going to get in touch with her just to round off the show. But now, to kick it off from the top, I'm going to turn... Right to Melanie. Melanie Cooksdorf and Zachary Rothman went to one of the Push Festival's dance entries last Friday. The piece was called Transmission of the Invisible. And it was a piece based on Khmer dance from Toronto's co Toronto composer and choreographer Peter Chin. Here's the report the two of them brought back. So here we are on the bus on our way away from the Scotiabank Dance Centre and one of the PUSH festival shows called Transmission of the Invisible by the choreographer, composer and also the dancer in the first piece, Peter Chin. I should mention that the piece that it was about the experience of dancers and choreography and traditions in Cambodia during and after the Pol Pot regime and the genocide that occurred there, where 90% of the dance theater artists of Cambodia died. And with it, this, this history, this oral history, you could even say this bodily history, almost disappeared because it wasn't written down. A really beautiful, profound theme. And I thought that Peter Chin's solo, which began the night, was beautiful because he was trying to speak but he couldn't speak and at one point I heard him say when he was facing the back why didn't you write it down yeah, true. the untitled solo by Peter Chin I thought was fantastic he just has this lightness to everything that he does this sort of humor and all those m movements and uh, I, I loved it I thought if, if the rest of the piece had kept that I'd have a lot better things to say after this it also was accompanied by a really beautiful piece of music that sort of combined some traditional Cambodian music with some modern sounds, and Peter Chin composed it, 
and uh, it suited the piece perfectly. You know, it really felt right. And then the main piece of the evening, Transmission of the Invisible, came on and the dancers were incredible. Such clarity of movement. But, and I think you agree with me on this one, Zach, that the tone stayed the same throughout. There was no arc. Yeah, there was, there was not a dramatic arc. And for a long piece, I mean, the piece ran about an hour and a half, you know, which is lengthy for most dance pieces. And it, it just didn't go anywhere, you know. It was a tone of pain, and, and to sustain that for 90 minutes, there's a lot to ask of the audience. Um, another issue that I had with the piece, and I have, have this with dance and performance in general when video is projected. Video, video often takes over the attention of the audience. And in this case, it made the dancer seem smaller than life, even as the video was way larger than life. You know, you saw this dying grandparent. You saw their hand to the size of, of all the dancers combined, you know. And it's really arresting but not as important as what's going on on stage. And suddenly the dancers look contrived and fake. Well, this video behind them is like of a Cambodian street, like it's real. I haven't seen video really compliment a piece rather than almost belittle it and take away the audience's attention. Well, I would agree with you. There was one thing I did like about the video and they constructed the set pieces in such a way that the video had kind of a three-dimensional quality to it. So in terms of enveloping the dancers in kind of a world of video, it was it was really effective at doing that. You know, there was even sort of a crack in the wall where the dancers would enter and exit by, and it, it made them, you know, meeker and more powerless. And, and I like that about it, but it's true. The video did overwhelm the dance. You know, it just contributed to the feeling that the whole piece was of one tone. Well, I guess we're almost nearing our destination, so we'll wrap this one up. But... Overall, beautiful potential. And a climate control system that works a little bit better. <laughs> Zach was overheating. He felt like he was in the Cambodian jungle. Did have a bit of that feeling, especially with the crickets and the insect sounds. But anyway, that's everything for us. I'm Melanie Cookstorf. I'm Zach Rothman. Transition of the Invisible continues to play um, at the Push Festival until Sunday, February 8th. And thanks so much to Zach and Melanie for that report. Um, transmission of the Invisible, as they said, is by Peter Chin. Uh, the running time is 30 minutes, and it's on stage at the Scotiabank Dance Centre. I myself actually headed out to see a show last night called, very similar in title to the one that Zach and Mel Melanie saw. It was called, it's called The Invisible, and it's by the amazing Montreal artist, um, Marie Brassard. And I had a lot of expectations coming into this, uh, into the performance. Um, the, it is described as a collaboration of sound and, and light and storytelling. And um, Marie brings this idea of the invisible, of ectoplasms, and of uh, the identities of people who may or may not exist, depending on how you interpret stories and you interpret, interpret lives and how you choose to believe things. And um, I, I was captivated at the beginning of the, of the show. It, it's a rather bare stage. Um, and you see this piece of mylar, which is a very thin metal, almost like aluminum, floating through space, seemingly ghost-like, just floating through the center of, 
the stage and eventually you see that Marie is manipulating this piece and the way that the light is shining off of it is what is creating this idea of movement and um, she brings the story of um, a very famous I believe New York artist uh, who is named J.T. Leroy and J.T. wrote a book and was well known in artist circles all over New York but it turns out that J.T. was just a hoax, a literary hoax imagined by a, a woman hoping to get published. And uh, when it was revealed that J.T. was not an actual person, there was huge hubbub and horror over everyone who had believed in this story and had talked so much about him. But the idea of identity and uh, the idea that this person, this experience that was expressed, was most likely lived by people, perhaps not by one specific person, but it reflects a greater truth. The idea of the show, behind the show, The Invisible by Marie Brossard, was very interesting, but the production itself lost steam, and in in essence, I really believe it sort of got lost in its own tricks and whistles. There's lots of beautiful sounds, lots of amazing light and picture shows that go on on stage, which make you make the stage open up into spaces that are different, that that show light in a different way. But I felt like that all detracted from this sort of oral storytelling that came out in the beginning. Very traditional Quebecois, almost, storytelling of bringing you in and, and introducing you to a character and getting you to feel and empathize. But in in the end, it just didn't take me anywhere or it didn't take me far enough for me to really latch on to and really be able to recommend The Invisible to you. But if you are on campus, it's playing at the Friedrich Wood Gallery, uh, Friedrich Wood Theater on at UBC until February seventh. So if you have a chance to check it out, I, it's definitely interesting and uh, a good ninety minutes. But um, I was a little disappointed in the end. Rounding out our uh, Push Veg Festival coverage, however, this week, I uh, sent our CITR's music director, Luke Meat, out to catch drumming last night, and he came back with the following report. Take it away, Luke. Good afternoon. Bring up 20th century American composers as a topic of conversation at your next dinner party, and you're most likely to be met with blank stares or at least an eye roll or four. That is a shame because what happened at the Heritage Hall last night was enough to make any doubter swoon with bliss. The Music on Main All-Star Band presented Steve Reich's Drumming. In Reich's own words, while performing and listening to gradual musical processes, one can participate in a particular liberating and impersonal kind of ritual. Focusing in on the musical process makes possible that shift of attention away from he and she and you and me outwards toward it. Reich, best known for his composition known as phasing, where musicians play the same musical pattern, then gradually one musician slows the pattern down to make an off-kilter rhythm against the existing pattern, thus creating an entirely new sound to the piece. The difficulty with phasing music is the musician has to unlearn everything they were taught about keeping in time and concentrate on their own anti-rhythm. To the untrained ear, the music can be accused of sounding unrehearsed. The main all-star band could not be accused of that in any way, shape, or form last night. The evening began with four percussionists playing a pair of tuned bongos with mallets, a very slow, static beat built up into polyrhythmic controlled chaos over the next 20 minutes until more musicians emerged from the audience to play similar patterns on three marimbas until eventually their musical pattern took over while two female vocalists intonated in time. 
The third movement was entirely played on three glockenspiels with piccolo accompaniment until all 12 musicians were thumping away at their respective instruments. Judging by the eye contact the musicians maintained with each other through this last movement, they were having a very reserved time of their life. When they finished, the audience exploded into a five-minute standing ovation. The most interesting aspect of this performance was that the audience was circled around the performers and the musicians sat among us. I personally wish the two load-bearing pillars weren't in the way, since we didn't need them, as the Music on Main all-star band blew the roof off the Heritage Hall. This is Luke Mead for CITR Arts Report. Thanks so much, Luke. Now, I'm I'm just tuning into a little bit of a... of Steve Reich's um, music here to give you an idea of what this might sound like. I believe this is from the second movement of drumming. And if you ever get a chance to uh, to go to one of these performances, there is another performance tonight, in fact, at the Heritage Hall, but it is entirely sold out. Lucky for you people out there that a third performance has been added to the... Um, to the Push Festival schedule, and that is on February 4th at 6.15 p.m. Um, And if you get a chance to get out to hear this, there's nothing like it. And uh, it certainly changes the way that you understand rhythm, the way you understand sound and music. It's just an amazing experience. So get on out to the Push Festival, whether or not it's to Club Push, to drumming, to Transmission of the Invisible, to the Invisible, or any of the other wonderful performances that are still on stage. The Push Festival is closing this weekend. So get out there while you still can and enjoy the show. All right. Now, apart from everything that's going on at the at the uh, Push Festival, there are other arts communities here in Vancouver, and they are still going strong and probably drawing on some of the audiences that have come into town for the Push Festival. One of those is the Arts Club Theatre Company, and they opened their new performance of The Constant Wife by Somerset Mom just last week. And I sent my theatre critic, the fabulous Paul Riviere, out to review the show, and this is what he brought back for us. Take it away, Paul. Pleasure to go to the opening night of The Constant Wife, playing at the Stanley Industrial Alliance stage on Granville Island until February 22nd. The Constant Wife is written by uh, Somerset Mon, one of my favorite writers, and is a comedy set in 1934. It tells the story of Constant Middleton, an upper-middle-class housewife who tries to ignore the fact that her husband is having an affair with her best friend. She does this because she realizes that After 15 years of marriage, she is no longer truly in love with her husband, so why not let him have a little fun? If this logic seems uh, surprising to you, it's because Mon is deliberately trying to question our beliefs in the status quo. And with his razor-sharp insight, he is quick to point out the many unreal expectations placed in the middle of the last century. The brilliant wit and comedy of the play comes from the main character constantly choosing to go into directions that we don't expect. And she continually does the opposite of what the audience is looking at her to do. And this uh, is where most of the humor and the comedy of the play is derived from. The Arts Club production of The Constant Wife is particularly lively and fresh. 
Uh, Nicole Underlake gives a delightful and uh, exciting performance as Constance and is supported by a strong seasoned, seasoned cast, including uh, Mike Wasco as uh, Bernard Kersel, Celine Stubble as uh, Mary Louise Durham, and uh, Bridget O'Sullivan, cantankerous Mrs. Culver. Interesting that this, uh, enough that this is the third play I've seen this year that challenges the conformity of female gender roles. The UBC production of Medea, which has uh, Medea killing her children in order to escape uh, seek revenge upon her husband. In Miss Julie Freedom Summer, um, we have Miss Julie seeking to break free of the limits of uh, gender placed on her in the South uh, Mississippi during the early 1960s. And now with the uh, constant wife, we have Constant Middleton reacting quite differently and shockingly to the affair of her husband and finding her own way of uh, seeking revenge and uh, justifying the situation. So it's interesting that those uh, types of plays are out there early this year and uh, reflecting, the, I think, the type of energy that um, we're seeing at the beginning of uh, 2009. So for uh, The Constant Wife, be there for the uh, unexpected and untraditional exploitation of gender poli uh, politics and even from a play that's written 65 years ago now. And be there for the uh, exciting performances, uh, the light, uh, lightning satire and whip, and also for the gorgeous set design by Ken McDonald. For The Arts Report, this is Paul Revere. Thanks, as always, to Paul. Now, I wonder what he's talking about, that, uh, that um, energy, the energy to f of female destruction, a female takeover. Is that what I'm hearing, Paul? I'll, I'll have to clarify that the next time we, uh, we touch base, Paul and I. But uh, thanks, as always, for that wonderful review. Uh, the Constant Wife is on stage at the Stanley Industrial Alliance, uh, until February 22nd, and uh, you can buy your tickets now. We're going to take a quick break and then come back. My name is Tracy Fuller. This is The Arts Report, and you are listening to CITR 101.9 FM. On February 8th at 8 p.m., the Chan Center and the Push Festival present New York City's avant-garde ensemble, Bang on a Can All-Stars, part rock band, part amplified chamber group, performing works by Brian Eno, and from Sonic Youth, Thurston Moore. And on February 15th at 8 p.m., the Chan Center and Kickstart Disability Arts and Culture present Weights, a live performance with Lynn Manning, a riveting one-man play told by actor-storyteller Lynn Manning about how his life changed forever when a bullet shot in a crowded Los Angeles bar robbed him of his sight. The show opens with BC singer-songwriter and recent Canadian Aboriginal Music Award winner Krista Couture. Tickets at Ticketmaster, student ticket pricing available for both shows. For more information, visit chancenter.com. bringing you back with uh, the arts report here. I've got a little more of uh, Steve Reich's drumming in the background here while I introduce the next uh, piece on the show. Yes, when it comes to Diamonds in the Rough, the Morris and Helen Belkin Art Gallery, found right here on UBC campus, is one of Vancouver's often overlooked treasures. On January 16th, 2009, a new exhibit entitled Action Camera Beijing performance photography 
opened at the Helen Belkin Gallery. Curated by Keith Wallace, the show explores an aspect of performance art that is popular in China and particularly in Beijing. Action Camera highlights China's relatively recent development of performance art and examines the trajectory it has taken from discrete underground performances to the now internationally recognized practice. Earlier today, I visited the Helen and Morris Belkin Gallery, and I spoke with the Public Programs Coordinator, Naomi Swada. She gave me a quick tour of Action Camera, which I recorded, and I'm going to share with you now. I hope you enjoy it. So, uh, the curator of this exhibition, Action Camera, Beijing Performance Photography, his name is Keith Wallace, and Keith is a guest curator. He uh, began the process of researching this show about three and a half to four years ago, when he was the interim director here, and that was when uh, Scott Watson, who's our uh, director curator, was on sabbatical. So Keith has always been interested in the way that um, artists in different countries uh, begin to explore mediums for various reasons, basically due to social and political kinds of circumstances. Um, The idea that uh, the West has had a long history of performance art Mm -hmm. uh, from Europe as well as from the States that is based in uh, theatre, that's based uh, in music, that's based in uh, poetics, isn't necessarily the same way that it has come about in China. Mm-hmm. And he's interested in uh, the way that modernism in particular, modernism, we tend to think that it happens in the West and it's about us moving forward and everybody else follows. Right. Where modernism really happens all around the globe at different times in different places under different circumstances. And it's still under all modernism, but it's, it's interpreted differently and it happens differently everywhere because every place is different and comes to mm-hmm. it. Um, under different kinds of circumstances. So um, he's interested in China in the late uh, late 1980s, 1980s and 1990s. Think of this in the context of the Tiananmen Square. Mm -hmm. And think of this as a time when many art forms began to uh, really become censored, highly censored by the government at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, In the 1980s, uh, performance... uh, was carried through and artists were able to do that there. Uh, It doesn't come though from the place of theatre as it does here or Dada or Fluxus or the kinds of experimental things that happened out here in the West and in Europe. Um, There the curator uh, is interested in seeing how it comes um, due to political circumstances of the things that we've just talked about. And Although it's happening in many places across China, he is interested in Beijing in particular because there seems to be a kind of spontaneous sort of uh, coalescence of many things happening there. Um, What kind of spurs this moment on is that in the um, late 80s period, a performance artist uh, began to have a show. She exhibited a show and then during her show there was a photograph of her installed in the exhibition space and she takes out a gun and she shoots the image of her now a gun going off under those kinds of political circumstances is a huge thing Mm -hmm. and 
the government begins to really take its steps towards censoring a lot of um, a lot of the freedoms that here out in the West we take for granted, especially in terms of artistic production. So uh, things go underground. People want to performance art, performance work, a lot of things have to go underground. And what you see in these first row of pictures in this hallway are kind of snapshots, things that were documented uh, by actually somebody who had a background in journalism. Oh, a lot of her friends, yeah, a lot of her friends were, were artists and writers and thinkers, and she is interested in just taking uh, photographs of what was happening in this kind of time period. And because there's a lot of um, energy and excitement, but also they are, um, you know, their security is at risk. Mm -hmm. These guys are taking a lot of chances by um, doing these kinds of things. Often they are not announced, mm -hmm. they are done, you know, with. You'll see a photographer there, maybe a friend of theirs, who happens to be uh, photographing one instant or one circumstance. It might be a group of us that knows each other that says, hey, so-and-so is going to be doing this. Let's all get together at his or her mm -hmm. apartment or at this particular place, mm -hmm. and let's just see what happens. Not necessarily for political reasons, but it's kind of, um, as the curator's interested in, he says that it's more of an assertion of being able to... Uh, to reassert their own function, their own function as artists and as thinkers, mm -hmm. um, as creative people, being able to do this in their society, mm -hmm. despite the kinds of um, other kinds of structures that are building up around them. Right. Um, now, what's interesting uh, is that in the mid-1990s, uh, a gallery in Tokyo asks um, two artists to exhibit their photographs of this time period, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden, they realize that there's a market now. Mm. So what was once underground now becomes a commercial venture. And issues of authorship, um, who owns the photograph? Is it the artist that actually who's performing that mm. owns the, who has um, ownership of the action? Um, because many of these things were not necessarily planned in advance. They were sort of acts that mm. happened. Um, so is it the photographer who gets credit and who gets uh, the commercial value for this? Or is it the artist? What happens? Right. So all of a sudden, um, you know, these kinds of issues start to percolate mm -hmm. up, and uh, this sort of sets the scene toward what happens in the other galleries. And I think we'll see kind of a chronology that begins to happen. Um, so we're looking at the early 1990s, and as we go through the other spaces, uh, I'll take you to two or three works that talk about the issues that come up from that, and then also the development of um, performance as it grows from this underground stage and now where it's internationally recognized. Many of these artists are extremely impoverished during this time. Mm -hmm. uh, it's difficult to be an artist, uh, let alone be an underground artist, and then doing work that is really not necessarily uh, towing the, the national agenda. Exactly. Right. Or agendas, whatever the, the multiples are. And uh, now many of these artists are extremely successful. They have careers that are pages and pages and pages long of exhibitions. Mm. Many of them have been asked specifically to show at uh, international shows, um, Venice Biennales, which they often feature uh, one or two highlighted artists as well as all the other um, artists from around the world coming to participate. So their careers are very different. Absolutely. No, they are them from the early 1990s. Would you say that their careers have been spawned because of outside interest in this, coming maybe from Europe or from North America before this? I mean, could, when these pictures are shown in China now, 
What's what's the sort of response that they get? Um, they say that it is sometimes favorable depending upon where it's shown. Mm -hmm. There are, um, you know, Shanghai, for example, has uh, now had one or two international biennales where every two years people from uh, artists, galleries uh, from around the world come to show, uh, you know, particular artists, and it's an international show. Um, the curator has expressed that it is easier to show a photograph than to actually show the physical body. Mm. So even a body in particular, you and I in space, if we were to actually physically be there performing, is yeah. much more dangerous than a photograph of a photographer. Still? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. It's amazing what we take for granted here in North America, where most people or most artists feel quite at liberty as much as there might be legal impl implications if perhaps you're shedding your blood on the mm -hmm. National Art Gallery walls or something of that nature, people still feel the freedom of expression here that is still rather... And everything is vetted. They say that even at these international biennales where the world is coming to China to show work, things have to be uh, submitted in advance, mm. either written material, catalogs, essays, as well as the artwork that's going to be shown. Mm. And it has to be uh, given permission right. to be shown there. So many things sometimes are turned away, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes not. And there's a way of writing about things, there's a way of speaking about things uh, that I think is not embedded only within artistic culture but just within the way that people communicate right. with each other on a daily basis. Hmm. And I think political and social things are still under a kind of um, scrutiny both from the state and from um, society in general. Definitely. Well, let's walk on and see a couple of the artists, other artists featured in the collection. Actually, let's start with this one. All right. This is this is by the artist Ai Weihui, and there are you can see in front of you a series of three photographs. He has taken um, a Han Dynasty urn and made the gesture of dropping it. Yeah. Now, to us, it's just an urn being dropped. Very quickly, you can see the photographs, three in succession. So in sequence, it's being released from his hand, falling, and then smashing on the ground. Mm -hmm. But there is, um, you can interpret this in a couple of ways. It's about uh, the way history has been obliterated mm -hmm. with the changing of times. It may be also the way that uh, history must change. We must move from our past. There is main, this is that sort of double entendre, this many way of speaking that we just sort of mentioned, that it's, mm. nothing is sort of necessarily clear to us. Um, and I think part of that has to do with the way that the West has come to uh, see its own artistic practice. Mm. Here in the West, we are trained to scrutinize almost everything that an artist does. Or even in journalism school, you, you have a clear idea about what it is that you want to go for. Mm and you build your story or your narrative, and you gather your information so that you know, something will support another thing. Or if something doesn't, if there's an unexpected turn in what you might find out, you're able to kind of step outside and say, okay, what's happening here? Mm -hmm. But there is a sort of self-reflexiveness, a back and forth, a questioning back and forth that always happens. I guess we're sort of trained in that way here. Mm -hmm. And we take it for granted that we are trained in this way and that everybody should be self-aware in the same way. Right. But what happens in a place where 
you can't be open about that. Mm -hmm. And it's not just about one person, it's generations or decades of this. Mm -hmm. How is it that you begin to communicate? Um, so a lot of times things are not necessarily clear as a narrative, a sequence. The beginning of a story, it goes, you know, the plot goes from A to B to C to D, and we can clearly figure that out. Here there is always sort of a double way of looking at that. And the arts in particular are interested in sort of bringing out many of those kinds of layers. Mm. Um, the uh, curator said that when he was speaking to many of these artists, even if he's trying to ask a direct question, a lot of things get lost in translation. Right. Not only from English to Chinese, but from Chinese then back into English. Right. So there is always... Um, a challenge, uh, there's always excitement of whatever, a slippage that happens mm -hmm. in terms of uh, not only understanding visual information and visual production, the, mm -hmm. the production of artwork, but also in the interpretation of that. Mm -hmm. And part of his, he was actually okay. He said that, you know what, it is okay that that happens. We can't expect that we know everything about something. No. Or, nor at the end of um, researching something will we ever know the full story. It's mm -hmm. always going to be coming out, and that's the way history is built on. History is always built on. Uh, something is laid down, something is figured out, and then the next round it's reinterpreted or more information comes into, um, comes into the fore. So, mm -hmm. uh, again, very, it looks very simple, the act of dropping an urn, uh, but again, you have these sort of multiple meanings. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things I would want to bring to mind when I'm looking at this this work in particular is just seeing the photographs of it versus actually being in the moment when when the, when the performance, let's say, happened. Mm -hmm. Not being able to hear that crash and to see really clearly what the urn looks like, etc. But, I mean, it is an act of defiance that was... Well, I would, from my perspective, I, I immediately sort of interpreted it as needing to let go of the past in some respect. Mm -hmm. And as we mentioned, it's sort of a, this double entendre. But when looking at all of the photos in the collection, I think it's probably important to keep, to keep in mind that these were acts that, were, that happened some time ago. Mm -hmm. Is that? Um, well, this one was uh, 1995. 1995. It's, and it's interesting that you say that um, you are not there to witness it, right? Mm -hmm. You're not present mm -hmm. um, when the performance or the act happens. And that's one of the main things that we see in this show, that often the viewer is experiencing this through the lens of a camera, mm -hmm. through the lens of the photographer. Right. So in the West, um, I mean, performance art has also developed in the West from spontaneous actions, etc. But now, if a performance happens very often... A time is set. Mm -hmm. the, uh, many, many artists have already figured out exactly where they want to go. Not all. Some are very spontaneous. But there is sometimes a sequential kind of... Uh, um, a sequential narrative mm -hmm. of one or many sorts that the, art, that the audience is necessarily engaged in. So that when we were now speaking to each other, we are... What I'm saying, you're responding to. What you're saying, I'm responding to. There are things, sounds, all these kinds of things that were here. We really do witness this after the moment through the lens of a camera. Right. Um, and so it's interesting how you say that the nuances of the sound, of maybe the smell of the bricks and the mortar and the concrete, all that would have been part of the audience's experience at the time. Now it is we're more looking at this... Um, as a composition, right? As right. we would painting or something mm -hmm. else. 
and so that's an interesting aspect as well, that these guys are not necessarily constrained or, um, how shall I say, I shouldn't say constrained, but they're, uh, the presence of the audience is not factored into this. Yeah, it's not an essential element because it couldn't have been. No. Sometimes it couldn't have been because of, you know, censorship and because mm-hmm. of the other um, things that they were trying to deal with. Um, and part of it might be uh, they have more freedom or more spontaneity, mm-hmm. you know, spontaneity yeah. because of that. Right. All right, let's move on to another piece. This work is interesting to me. Okay. Uh, this is the only female, actually, that's... Uh, presented in this exhibition, and her name is He um, Cheng Yao. Uh, it is very difficult for females to mm-hmm. be artists, let alone um, perform in the nude. Yes, the body, um, the naked, the nude body is really looked upon uh, in not so great of a way in China. Um, males, let alone females, and it's even more difficult for females to become artists. Apparently, it's you know looked down upon in terms of you know, society, mm-hmm. and as well as your family would be trying to discourage you. Mortified. Yeah, that you wanted to be an artist, let alone, you know, show your body. Right. Here in the West, we tend to see bodies everywhere. Yes, you know, whether it's young singer-songwriters or, I mean, our every night television show right. you can watch, you can see... Girls Gone Wild, yes, right? You can, see, you, can, you can see it all. So, um, and this is also interesting. If you were to take, okay, so I'm going to ask you a question. If you take mm-hmm. a look at this, mm-hmm. name some things that come to your mind. Well, immediately, what I'm looking at is a, a woman who's just wearing underwear, and she, uh, she has um, acupuncture needles stuck all over her body. And the, the amazing thing that I'm drawn to is her eyes. They're slightly open. They're completely captivating, but almost in a dead way. And, and then, apart from the fact that she has acupuncture needles all over her body, the only blood you see is a little bit right in her vaginal area, and then some coming out of her wrist, which immediately sparks a, a, an association with Jesus, or right. those kind of... A Western sort of religious kind of context, right? Yes. A Christian religious context. So, this is an interpretation of us from the West, and even though we may not be religious, that mm-hmm. stuff is fully all around us. I mm-hmm. mean, if you've grown up in the West um, and you've been educated in the West, for the most part, you understand little bits of Christianity. So it's, you know, plus her arm is open out like this, like a, like a stigmata, right? right? She's opening up and she's showing her wrist. And mm-hmm. also either it's menstrual blood or the idea of birth, right? right. That, come immediately, that comes immediately to mind. This picture um, actually is... Um, the backstory is that her mother uh, was mentally ill for many years, and in the East, actually in the West too, mental illness is not something that people talk about. Highly taboo. Highly taboo, and people don't talk about it. They hide their family members. They, you know, you just don't let people know that you have um, your mother is mentally ill. Her mother was mentally ill, and she had witnessed her mother going through many kinds of acupuncture and other kinds of medical procedures to try and be cured. And she saw her mother resisting all these. Um, and it was something that she could never talk about. Her mother could never articulate it, and nor could the daughter talk to her mother about it because mm-hmm. you just don't talk about that kind of a subject. So um, at one point, she had a friend who was an acupuncturist uh, at lunchtime put these needles into her body. And it was just a way of her trying to work through what she had experienced with her mother. Right. 
Um, and I guess the blood that you see coming out from just above her wrist is um, one of the needles that hit a vein instead of hitting a nerve. Right. And after all these 99 needles, I mean, they're going into all these different nerve endings, mm-hmm. and it was just overload. She actually fainted. Oh. Um, but the idea is that she as, you know, is willing to put her body through this in order to experience it. Mm-hmm. So the body in this way is enduring and it is also experiencing something. Mm-hmm. And performance in this case, you'll see the idea of endurance, uh, whether it's enduring um, different kinds of weather conditions, uh, enduring uh, different environmental conditions. In this mm-hmm. case, over here, there's a man who actually has exploded dynamite and they run around to the other side of the structure and trying to right. push it. There's all these sort of physical acts of endurance. This is also another one. Right. Aha. Now this is, this perhaps is, uh, listeners will know this one from the, uh, the gallery website. website. So this is a, a performance by an artist named Li Hui and it is called 29 Levels of Freedom. And what he's done is he is projecting himself Literally, he, you know, he's projecting himself outside of a window on the 29th floor of a large skyscraper. And if you take a look at this, I mean, his, where is it? his knees are on the windowsill, and he is vertically moving outwards, like propelling it, himself. It out. looks like he's about to do a Superman right out the window. <laughs> out the window, right? So he's, he's leaping forward, and it's these people who are behind him, they're sort of like, three people that you see these arms extended trying to capture him, trying to catch him, but are they, or are they just taking, I mean, there's a look of excitement, of awe, of fear, of oh my god, what the heck's going on, but they've gone too far for him to come back. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it is, it is exhilarating, but it is also fearful. It's like a leap of faith. Yeah. That here we go, we're moving forward. Actually, I hate that term. (laughs) (laughs) These things are happening, and here we go. We're <laughs> launching forward. Um, now, what we don't know is that there's actually... He, has photo, he is suspended by cables. Oh, really? And they've been photoshopped out. Okay. But, I mean, he's still hanging he, outside the window. The majority, at least 80% of his body, is this, way outside of this window. Right. Not safe at all. And um, it also visually looks to me like uh, a dragon. You see many sort of dragons, um, the symbol of a dragon or the figure of a dragon, and it's sort of undulating form, mm-hmm. and the tendrils are often, you know, from the side of its head, sort of moving and undulating outward. And I sort of look at this, that the hands give have that energy, the way that their hands yeah. are being grasped open and their palms are spread out ahead of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is really remarkably, I mean, this is a modern city. Look at it. It's a contemporary yeah. city. There's construction going all around. There's a freeway running full force below. Yeah, fl- cloverleaf all over the place. There's a hubbub of activity. And we know that uh, the way that, even in the context of the last Olympic Games, um, and the way that Beijing has presented itself to the world, mm-hmm through the media and through um, the lives of the people who are there. Uh, It's extraordinary, I think, that on the one hand, uh, in the year 2003, when this was taken, Mm -hmm. it's been now 2003. The photographs we've just seen were like in the mid-1990s, so it's only a span of about eight years or so. But already you see the development of performance beginning to change. Now Mm -hmm. you have not only just one single lens camera, now you see a production beginning to happen.
mm -hmm. right? And you see technological um, kinds of uh, after work, after effects of Photoshop and all those right. other things. And also, you now have the staging. You have to mm -hmm. get a crane. Exactly. You have to put that safety net in in place and get other actors involved to make sure that this is a safe right. thing to do, but also just to have it happen. Well, great. Well, thank you so much, You're Naomi. Welcome. Action camera Beijing performance photography is on at the Helen Belkin Gallery until April 19th, and it's free, people, free. So head on out there. My big thanks go out to Naomi Sawada, the public programs coordinator at the gallery, for taking us through. And uh, I'm going to leave you with a, a, a quick PSA, and we'll be back with Jody Glennon. Push Festival, one of Western Canada's largest performing arts festivals in association with Theatre Conspiracy, presents Club Push, a festival within the festival at Performance Works on Granville Island. $20 gets you in to check out an innovative performance, a band, or a DJ. After 11 p.m., it's free. Tuesday through Sunday, January 27th to February 7th. Visit pushfestival.ca or call 604-605-8284 for information and the full Club Push lineup. Licensed and chill, it's the best time you'll have for 20 bucks.
And that is one shot from Jody Glennam's new album, which is called Focus Pull. And um, I've actually contacted Jody today, and uh, she's on the line here with me right now. Jody, can you hear me? I can hear you. Wonderful. Well, so one shot, hey? Only one shot? Do you really believe that? Uh, it's just, it's a metaphor. Um, it's kind of inspired by my time in Vancouver. Vancouver's such a film town, so mm -hmm. fair enough. Fair enough. Um, but coming to Vancouver, you grew up in Winnipeg and Calgary. What's 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 up with this push west? Are you, are the winters getting to you? The winters were getting to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it was uh, Winnipeg, and then Ed I went to school out in Edmonton. Uh, but. Okay. Yeah, there's just, I don't understand how people can do it. Like, my mother will call me, and she's like, oh, yeah, it's minus 35 today. Um, yeah, no, thank you. <laughs> yeah, that really doesn't appeal to me either. My father lives in northern Ontario, and he. there are days when children are told not to go to school because being outside might be detrimental to their health. Yeah, it's dangerous. <laughs> yeah, seriously. What kind of country is this we're living in? <laughs> exactly. But yes, the new album, your first album came out in 2006. It was called Brave New World. Mm -hmm. Now the new album is about to launch. It's available yesterday in stores, but the official release is March 3rd at the Biltmore, right? That's true. Uh, the Biltmore is pretty rad. I was there last night for a friend's birthday. It's a good place. It's a great venue. I really love going to shows there because it's, it's not pretentious. You feel a real intimacy with the people who are on stage, but there's also plenty of room to rock out if you want to. Exactly. Yeah. So what's changed for you between these two albums? It's been about three years. Where Where have you come from? Uh, well, I think, um, I've, I've, I think I've matured a little bit as a songwriter, like mm -hmm. subject matter. Mm -hmm. um, I played all the keyboard and piano parts on this album, which I didn't do that on the first one, which was, which was pretty cool. Um, just to, like sit down and just like record a bunch of stuff and then pick and choose and mm -hmm. go from there. Because you've been playing piano since before you could basically talk, right? Yeah, I can't remember when I wasn't in piano lessons. <laughs> so um, bringing together all the piano parts and all the keyboard parts, is that how you develop your songs? Is just you sitting at a piano? and Usually just me sitting at a piano. I actually wrote a couple of the songs um, on this album on guitar. Oh, great. Which was pretty cool because I think you structure things differently and kind of take them in different directions. Mm -hmm. Is what, uh, what? What would you say is the biggest risk you took on this new album? Um, I guess doing it again, and then also, um, I mean, I did my first album when I was living in Edmonton, and there was a surplus of. I, mean, I was bartending five nights a week, and living costs were very cheap. Mm -hmm. uh, so I didn't put myself into debt for that one. But uh, you know, this on it's independent again, and it's coming down on me. Uh. <laughs> But I'm sure you must be excited. You're, I believe you're heading down to the South by Southwest Festival again yeah, this year? Yeah, that's actually a holiday. Uh, I'm not playing this year. I'm oh, no? I'm taking away to someplace warm. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. It's been an interesting day, though. I actually heard myself on uh, CBC Radio early, about an hour ago for the first time I've ever heard myself on the radio. Random. Crazy. Did they just call you up, or what, was, what happened? Uh, Lisa Christensen, she chose me as like the hidden talent of, of the day, I guess. Hey, you go, girl. Yeah. <laughs> I sold her a pair of boots once. <laughs> oh, no way. Did you tell her that? Uh, no, I, she knows who I am, so yeah. <laughs> I see. I, I just met her the other night um, at one of the Push Festival shows, and um, we were just talking about random stuff. It was 
it was the first time I've ever met her, but of course she's one of those radio voices that you hear for a long time, and I don't know, it was just... It you was feel a trip. instantly familiar in their in their presence because you know their voice. <laughs> Absolutely, and the same with Grant Lawrence. The first time I ran into him, I was like, "I know you! I like you've gone all over the world in my iPod with me." But <laughs> but yeah, nice. Um, so yeah, so what's the, what's the plan for Friday? Tell me about the show on Friday. Uh, well, Friday I'm playing with two uh, other artists. One of them's from Calgary. They're called Wood Pigeon. Okay. Uh, fantastic. And then also um, a gentleman by the name of Chris Smith. And I'm in his um, side band, uh, the Beck and Call, as well. Okay. So we'll be, we'll be closing the show. And it's uh, Chris Smith and the Beck and Call's first show as a band. Really? Very exciting. That Little Mountain Studios up on Main Street starts at 8. Okay. Yeah. Um, are you going to be only playing stuff from the new album, or will you be playing a bunch of... Different. Will you be playing um, stuff from the new album? I'm mainly sticking with like the new stuff off uh, Focus Bowl. Uh, I sometimes play a couple of the older songs. Uh, but, you know, we're just trying to get it all out there. So, <laughs> I remember the first time we met, we were going. I was going on stage to announce people to uh, to support CITR, and I was a nervous wreck. Ooh, there comes your song again. Um, a nervous wreck, and you were so kind to me. You wrote down your name and everything, and and we're so. Um, understanding that I was freaking out because I'm never on stage on radio that's the, one of the most wonderful things is that see I don't I don't like being on stage either really <laughs> I think that's where we bonded <laughs> like you just work through it <laughs> yes yes do you have any tips for, for the next time I might have to climb up there uh, I drink oh you drink so does <laughs> Jeff Burner <laughs> have you met him <laughs> uh, yes um, I, I drinking is definitely one way to get around that stage fright yep <laughs> All right, well, um, I'm going to play another track from your new album. Uh, how about I play, uh, we can choose between coffee-soaked or buttons. Let's go with coffee-soaked. Okay, can you, can you intro the song a bit? Tell me a little bit about it. Um, well, I kind of wrote the chorus with, like, uh, I have a friend that she sees music as very visual. Okay. Uh, she sees music in colors and that sort of thing, and... Um, so I kind of wrote the chorus as like a swirling coffee cup is supposed to be visual. I don't know. <laughs> cool. Do you drink coffee? I drink a lot of coffee. Oh, my God. A lot I'm... of good coffee in Vancouver. There is. But when I moved out here, coming from Ontario, there, were har there was nary a Tim Hortons to be found. And that was sort of strange for me because I, I grew up in a Tim Hortons culture. But they're, they're slowly but surely coming out here. But there are so many other, like, super great coffee places to go. Yeah. When I leave Vancouver, it takes me 24 hours to miss good coffee and then three, three days to miss sushi. Oh, oh my God. The sushi is just a whole other, like, yeah. you'd have to have another show. <laughs> but, but anyways, Jody, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. No problem. And uh, this is Coffee Soaked from Jody's new album, Focus Pull, that came out yesterday in stores, so look for it, and which will be premiering, uh, well, the album will be officially launched at the Biltmore Cabaret on March 3rd, but you can check out Jody this Friday at the Little Mountain Studios right here in Vancouver. This is Coffee Soaked. Hey, that was awesome. Oh, really? Oh, shit. And I'm total, okay, I changed it. It's fine. <laughs>
Yeah, I tried to uh, get, I went through to, there's um, a website where you can buy the album, but they only play snippets from each of the tracks, so this was the next best thing. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, we'll I'll tell Luke to look for it. No problem. Thank you. As soon as I, like, every week I try and play something that's local that's going to be on stage in Vancouver and try and get in touch with people. So. All right. Well, then I will definitely be in touch. All right. Well, you have a good night. Okay. Bye. I'm bringing Jody down a little bit. Sorry for the technical difficulties in the show today. I'm mortified, seriously, out there. Um, but thank you guys for tuning in and for encouraging me and for keeping on, keeping on with the Arts Report. My name is Tracy Fuller, CITR 101.9 FM. Join me again next Wednesday at 5 o'clock for Everything Artsy in Vancouver.